0: I've titled the sermon this morning, Finding Freedom in Loving and Obeying Jesus. And that, I hope that sounds almost counterintuitive. Uh, it's kind of meant to. Finding freedom in obeying somebody else. Uh, that, that should be countercultural. But that's the idea here that I want us to, to see in John's writing to us here in chapter 2 of 1 John. Uh, I had a whole introduction planned out. I'm gonna forego that for sake of time. Let me just cut to the chase. Here's the main idea, okay? Here's the main idea. To know Jesus is to love Jesus. To love Jesus is to obey Jesus. To know him is to love him. And what I mean by that is if you really, if you the more you you understand who he is and know who he is and and John's going to tell us more about who Jesus is, the person and the work of Jesus. It, it, it compels us to love him. And to love him, then, is to obey him. And in that obedience, find your greatest freedom. Okay? To know him is to love him. To love him is to obey him. And in that, find your greatest freedom. Let's look back at the text in 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. If you've been with us the last few weeks, this this is similar to what's been said uh, in the opening chapter here to First John, uh, but he's continuing to just I, I guess do two things: beat the drum. Like th- th- there's there's a way to know if you really know Jesus. There's a way to have some assurance if you really know him. Again, it's it's are you are you believing in the gospel that was delivered to you by the apostles, the ones who actually knew him and walked with him and listened to him and wrote down the things that they heard. Are you, are you you believing the apostolic testimony of the gospel? And, and if you're, if you're doing that, then are you, are you recognizing that in God there is no sin? He's pure light. There's no darkness in Him. And so if, if you're in Him, you're going to start looking like Him. Your life is going to begin to take on that same shape. You're going to sin a lot less. You ought to. You, you shouldn't walk in darkness anymore. If you, if you walk in darkness and there's no, there's no fight in you to say, I want to repent from that and turn from that and, and see this newness of life take root and take shape in me, then you're, you're deceiving yourself. You're not really in Christ. Because if you're in Christ, you're going to look different. It's the same kind of idea here, but, but he's, 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 he's not just beating the drum. He's going to continue to fill it out for us with, with ways that that, that help us to, to really, uh, to know and treasure this Christ that we say that we're in. To, to have a motivation for that walking in newness of life, that obedience to Him that's rooted in this incredible gratitude for who He is and what He's done. And so I, I said that the main idea, the first part of it is to, to know Jesus is to love Him. And that's, that's the first point of my message this morning. That's the first point I think of what John is trying to say here. To, to know Jesus is to love him. And, and I'm getting that from the first two verses, right? I mean, again, he says, I'm writing these things that you don't sin. But if, if you do sin, and he's writing to, he says, my little children, he's, he's talking to the church. He's talking to Christians. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus, the righteous one. He is an advocate with the Father. He's the propitiation for our sins and, and not just for ours, but for the whole world. There's a, there's a incredible doctrine here. Uh, there's three incredible doctrines, I think, that he's unfolding here. Uh, and, and I, and I think it's important. Part of preaching, part of the responsibility of preaching in the church is to, to teach doctrine to the church. But, but as, uh, I think it was J.I. Packer said so well, you know, theology or doctrine, theology is supposed to lead to doxology. Doxology is the title of that song we just sang. What was the, what were the words? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Doxology is praise to God. The more we understand our theology, it's supposed to lead us to praise. And and that's, I think, what, what John is doing so masterfully here. Let me, I, I actually wrote down the Packer quote that I just, I just alluded to. Let me, let me read it fully. Theology is for doxology and devotion. That is the praise of God and the practice of godliness. Theology is supposed to teach us how to practice godliness, but it's for the praise of God. It's at its healthiest when it's consciously under the eye of God of whom it speaks and when it's singing to his glory. C.S. Lewis said something similar. He said, I tend to find the doctrinal books often more helpful in devotion than the devotional books. I'd rather suspect that the same experience may, may await many others. I believe that many who find that nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion would find that the heart sings unbidden while they are working their way through a tough bit of theology with a pipe in their teeth and a pencil in their hand. Amen to that. He's saying, like, theology, good. When you get the doctrine of Christ, it, it's supposed to make you go, he is beautiful, and, and it, it, it evokes our love for him. And, and again, I think this scripture is great because this, it's so rich in theology, but, but the intent of John is to drive our hearts to pray. So here's the three important doctrines pertaining to the person and work of Jesus that I hope will, in grasping them, make our hearts sing this morning. And the first one is this, Jesus advocates for us. I'm writing to you that you, that you may not sin, but if you do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What's a, what's a neat thing to do is to look through the scriptures and, and to look at scenes of the throne room of God, uh, and see the common threads that, that, uh, that carry through those different scenes. And what you'll find is that a lot of them look like a courtroom. A lot of them look like a courtroom where God is the judge and he's, he's seated as the judge and he's judging the nations. And, and the, and the picture that we get from scripture is this, is that the sins of the whole world are always before him he his eyes go to and fro about the earth he, he sees the 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 behavior he sees the lifestyle the actions of of men and women throughout the world and and he sees all of the ways in which our hearts are far from him and all the ways in which the fruits of our hearts are rejections of him and and, and, and disgraces to him our sins are are always before him but not only is our sin always before God, we also get this picture uh, frequently in Scripture, and, and I'll, I'll quote one of them. It's in Revelation chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, that Satan is before God as well, and Satan is always accusing us. Revelation, again, 12, 9 and 10, says Satan who accuses them day and night before our God. He accuses you, believer, day and night before God. So if we have the scene of a of a courtroom, we've got the judge and we've got the prosecutor. The prosecutor is is Satan and he's he's just got to, you know, continually bring the evidence before the judge. Look, he's pointing at us as believers and he's saying, "Look, here's the evidence. Here's what they did today. Here's what they said they were going to do, but here's what they really did." And and here's the thing, he doesn't have to work that hard. Right? Because everything he says about us, despite the fact that Satan is a liar, everything that he accuses us of doing before the Lord has merit. He doesn't have to lie, he just has to point out the reality of our hearts. And so this is the picture that we have of Satan and our sins are constantly before the Lord. The the, the prosecution is strong. So the question we ask is, well, do we have a defense? And this is what the Word of God tells us about our defense. And this is what John is, is getting to. Mark 16, verse 19. It says, So then the Lord Jesus, after He had spoken to them as disciples, He was taken up into heaven. This is the ascension. After the death and resurrection of Christ. He spent some time with the disciples. He, he ascended up to heaven, and it says there, and he sat down at the right hand of God. So Jesus is seated in that same courtroom at the right hand of God, and what is he doing there? Romans 8.34 says this. It says, who is there to condemn us? Well, I just told you who's there to condemn you. Satan. He's doing that night and day. And yet Paul says, but really, Who's there to condemn you? Why? Because Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, who was raised. In other words, he didn't just die for your sin. He conquered it. He conquered the penalty of sin. He rose from the dead, who is seated at the right hand of God, is interceding for us. He's speaking on our behalf. He's the defense. But what's the nature of that? defense. How can he intercede successfully if the verdict ought to be, based on the evidence, always, every single time, guilty? I was reminded of a, of a show that I used to watch as a kid, not because I liked it. My mom liked it, and it just kind of was always on in our house, but she used to watch Perry Mason. Mo- most of you may be too young to know what I'm talking about, but Perry Mason was, a, was a, like one of the first courtroom dramas Alright. He was a lawyer and every week, you know, he's got a case and he's the defense attorney. He's always trying to like, you know, get his client off. His clients are always, always innocent. Uh, what I was reminded of is I actually read something about Perry Mason this week and, and, and what I read was this, that he never lost a case. Good old TV. But here's the thing. Satan ought to be Perry Mason. Right? He ought to never lose a case because he's always got the right evidence and yet the reality is Jesus is Perry Mason in this example because his clients always, always get off. Why? Because of the second important doctrine here. Jesus propitiates God. We have Jesus the righteous who is Interceding for us, who is our propitiation. What does propitiation mean? I said last week we were going to talk about it. A lot of you memorized that verse this week. It's a big word. Uh, it's a Bible word. What does it mean? It's, it's simply this. It's, it's, it means to appease, but it's more than to appease. It's to appease by satisfying. Jesus as our propitiation appeases the just wrath of God. If, if if the evidence is presented and the evidence is always pointing to our guilt, if God is good and God is just, God must then declare guilty. And therefore, there must be some sentence handed out, right? For God to just say, well, you're guilty. There ought to be a sentence. We're just going to sweep this one under the rug would make God unjust. For God to be good and just There's gotta be a satisfaction of the sentence, and that's what it means, that Jesus is our propitiation. He appeases the righteous wrath of God against the injustice, against the sin, but He satisfies it. He died instead of you. That's what He says when He's declaring before the Father our right to walk free. That's what it means. Is he's saying to the father, yes, there's sin here, but the debt's been paid. I paid it on their behalf. This one, by faith and repentance, is mine. They have put their trust in me, father. They're satisfied. You're satisfied. It's been paid. The only way a guilty person can walk free again is when they pay the debt to society. And when the debt's been paid, they ought to be then released Pardon, back into his full society, and Jesus saying, "That's the case, but you didn't pay the debt. I paid it, but it's paid." If you've been around here long enough, you you, you probably heard me share this story. I've shared it a couple times here um, about propitiation. Just the probably the best image of that that I've I've ever I've ever seen, or, or at least in my mind's eye. A friend of mine sharing about his dad, who was a pastor. I'll, I'll make this story short, but there were three boys in the church who vandalized the church building and it was obvious who it was. And so he calls them in with their fathers and they are all seated at the church office and they, they, they go through the whole thing like, you know, I know you guys did this and they, yeah, well, they confessed they did it. They just, dis- they uh, agreed together on what the, the proper punishment for their crime would be. And they determined together that the fathers would spank this, the, the, the boys. And yet, as they went to execute that, on the spot, this pastor steps over these kids, like on their knees, he gets on top of them, and he covers them, and he says to the dad, spank me. And all three times, the, the fathers are kind of looking like, what? You know, the pastor, no, really, don't hold back. Do it like you would do it. Spank me. And the, he took the spanking for the boys, and he did that specifically to tell them, this is what the gospel is, boys. You did something. You know you did something wrong. You're, you're guilty. There's no, there's no hiding from the fact that you're guilty. There's a, there's a penalty that needs to be paid for what you did, but I'll pay it for you. That's what Jesus is like. And so here John says, this is, this is Jesus. He's paid the debt. He propitiates God on our behalf. He's your advocate. He's our propitiation. And then the third thing he says is, and this grace that is given to you through His propitiation is a grace available to all. He's not just our propitiation. Not just for our sin, but also for the sins of the whole world. There's something really beautiful about what John is saying here. There's also something a little bit confusing about what he's saying here. Because some people have used this verse as a justification for universalism meaning that well then if jesus died for the sins of the whole world then i guess everybody gets to go to heaven that's why it doesn't really matter what you believe or you know what it, jesus paid all the debt so universally we're all forgiven that's not what john's saying here we know that's not what john's saying here because john makes it very clear that that that's never what he means he's very clear that that it is that, that God sent his son into the world that those who would believe in him would not perish, right? It's those who believed in his name whom he gave the right to become children of God. John's not confused about universalism, but what he's, what he's doing here is he's, he's a Jewish man and he understood the Old Testament examples of the atoning sacrifices and Leviticus chapter 60 verse 17 is an example of this that you can look up later, but, but the idea there is that for the Old Testament for the old covenant for the Jew the day of atonement was a day in which their sins were propitiated God was propitiated by their uh, their sin guilt being transferred to an animal that was sacrificed that animal was the represent the representative for their sin right and so they had this substitute but what was clear in the old covenant was that that substitute was only For Israel, because only Israel was under the Old Covenant. And what John here is saying here is about Jesus, is that Jesus is better than the Old Covenant because his propitiation, his atoning sacrifice was not just for some people, but it was for everybody. It was available to the nations, which is a beautiful thing as John is writing in to the churches of Asia Minor who were made up of Jew and Gentile alike and he's reminding them, half of you in this church are here because of Jesus and His work. All of you are in this church because of Jesus and His work. But some of you, some of you knew the atoning sacrifice of the Old Covenant, but now it's available to the nations in Jesus because that's exactly what He came to do. It's a better covenant. So here John is saying, look, do you know the person and the work of Jesus? Do, do you grasp this I mean if I, yeah, I'm writing to you so that you may not sin and, and and if you're if you're reading much of what he said here, you're getting this sense of like any, any religion can say these things. there is a God, this God is perfect. This God has no darkness in him. He's light and his demand on us is that we walk in that light. Every religion teaches that. And so every religion can then say, I'm writing these things to you so that you won't sin. In other words, if you sin, yikes, you're in trouble because the judge is perfect and he demands your perfect obedience. But John is not just saying that. He's saying more than that. He's saying, but as Christians, do you understand that, that our faith is different we have a Savior. Yeah, don't sin. He saved us, not just from sin, but, but for holiness. I'm writing these things that you may not sin, but if you do, do you understand the kind of God that you have? He's a forgiving God. He's standing there right now at the right hand of God, and every time you blow it, He's saying, I covered that, <laughs> which I need to hear today. I hope you need to hear that today. I need to hear that today. That's what Jesus is doing for me and for you, because he paid the debt 2,000 years ago. It's finished work. And I'm not a Jew. I'm a Gentile. And it's good news for me to know that he did that, not just for the Jewish people, but for every nation. I'm an Irish, Italian, Polish guy. Brought into the new covenant because of Jesus' final global work and when i hear that and i go this is the this is the god i i i can know this is the jesus that i i have man that is not just head knowledge for me and i I can tell by your nodding heads this is not just head knowledge for you either It, it, it it causes us to be grateful and to love him And I think that's exactly what John's trying to get at here. If you know Jesus, you're going to love Jesus. And then it goes without saying what he says next. Well, it doesn't go without saying because he says it. Verse 3, here's how you know that you've come to know him. If we keep his commandments. If you say, I know him, but you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. If, if, if you're really captivated by a God like this and, and He's calling you to live the way He lived, to walk the way He walked, you're, you're, you're going to do that. If you don't do it, it's just so incongruous. It doesn't make sense. That's what he's saying. To love Jesus is to keep His commandments. This is how the love of God is perfected, he says. And I think what he means by that is this is how your love for God is evident. This is how it it, it matures and blossoms. You're going to do what He says. And, and all week as I'm preparing this sermon, I'm thinking, what do I need to say about this? How do I fill this out? And the more I'm thinking about it, I, what, what can I say to this? I mean, it's pretty obvious what He's saying here, right? If you love Him, if you know Him, you're going to keep His commandments. I think the only thing I might add to that is just to, to, to remind us that that's He's talking about every one of them. Which, which I, I, think I, I think it's fair to say we're not that good at that, are we? He's not just talking about personal holiness. He's also talking about the social responsibilities that Jesus talked about. He's not just talking about the social responsibilities that Jesus talked about. He's also talking about the personal holiness that Jesus talked about. And not just that, but the social part. And then the personal part. Do you get it? The, all of it. And, and, I, and I, as I evaluate church, the church, this church, all churches, the churches around us in the world, I think usually uh, we tend to focus on one over the other a little bit, don't we? But Jesus is calling us to all of that. Everything that He said. Read the Gospels. Read the Beatitudes. What does He say? John's saying, look, do those things. Do all of those things. I don't think I can beat that drum anymore. than he's just beat it here. I think what might be more helpful is if I spend the rest of the time just filling out more of the motivation behind it. So let me try to do that. Because this is what John is saying. This is, this is who he is. How lovely is he? That ought to compel us to, to follow him and to do what he says. But here's the problem with that, is that in, in cultures like ours, The idea, again, of obeying somebody else pushes against our biggest cultural idol. And I mentioned it last week. I believe our culture's highest value might be found in the pursuit of and the defense of our individual freedoms. And by that, I mean the dominant contemporary postmodern notion that each person, each of us, ought to be free to choose for ourselves what we believe, how we live, what values to prioritize, and we should be able to do those things entirely apart from interference. From anybody else's morality, anybody else's values, anybody else's persuasion, truth is relative and determined by self. That's the, that's the dominant cultural idol I'm talking about. Now, I want to be clear to say that I'm not saying, and, and, and nor is the Bible saying, that freedom is a bad thing. On the contrary, freedom is a good thing. It is a gift from God, the Bible teaches that we were made and saved for freedom. For freedom. Christ has set us free. Galatians 5.1 Freedom is a good thing. Alright? But what idols are, Are they take good things and we take them too far, right? We twist them. We make God things out of good things. And I'm saying this is what our culture is doing with this notion of freedom. And I think our culture is wrong. It's wrong about what true freedom really is. And, and here's why I, 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 I can say that because I know that when you say something like First John 2, obey Him, keep all of His commandments, it rubs against our culture because it sounds a lot like a demand that requires the loss of individual freedom. And here's the thing. It is. It is. It's a demand that requires the loss of individual freedom. And I know that's why it's not very popular, but here's the the truth. Here's the message of the New Testament. It's also the pathway to a better and more fulfilling freedom. And I think it's worth explaining what I mean by that because I think it gets to the heart of John's whole flow of thought here. Uh, One example that's been helpful to me, uh, and it's one I've heard various people use. C.S. Lewis has used it. I've heard Tim Keller use it. But here's the the, the example of of kind of understanding the kind of better freedom that the offer to submit ourselves to Christ uh, is is really offering to us. If you get involved in a romantic relationship, okay, okay, if you're involved in a romantic relationship, your independence is going to be affected in some significant ways, right? Uh, as an example of that, I'll use myself. As a married man, I don't just make decisions about what I want to do without involving Christine. I might feel like I really deserve a vacation, Right? I really need to get out of town. I really need to go blow off some steam and get away from it all. And I might therefore then make the decision that I'm just going to drop everything and do that and not tell her. And if I take, you know, kind of the, the, the cultural idol to its nth degree, I mean, I'd have every right to do that, right? I should be free to do for myself whatever feels the best for me without the hindrance or encumbrance of somebody else's opinion. I don't need to ask her. I'll just go. Now, if I did that, you're all snickering, because you know the reality is that if I did that, I would have to expect to get probably a pretty angry phone call from her asking, where the heck are you, right? And if my response was, look, what does it matter to you? I wanted a vacation. I took it. I don't have to tell you what I'm doing. I can decide for myself. I can live my own life. I can dictate my own rules. I think it would be fair to say, if that was my response, there's something really wrong with our relationship. Right? It would be fair for her to respond back by saying, I think we need to reconsider this marriage. That's not how romantic relationships work. Right? That's not how they work. You can't be completely free in the most contemporary postmodern sense of the word and at the same time committed to a healthy relationship with somebody. It just doesn't work that way. When we got married, we had vows. And those vows included promises like in sickness or in health. We said for richer or for poorer. And there were other commitments that basically communicated this. A willingness to sacrifice oneself for the other. Right? I will lay down myself for you. If either of us says, no, me first before you, our relationship won't work and it won't last. But if we say, and we both say, you first, I will adjust for you, then there's no room for exploitation in that relationship and it should be a loving and lasting one, right? This isn't rocket science, is it? I'm not saying things you guys will go, wow, I've never thought of it that way. This makes sense, right? And that, that's the point. It makes sense. I I can certainly sacrifice my autonomy and freedom in order to be in a relationship with Christine, and and I do that. I sacrifice my autonomy. I sacrifice my freedom in many ways to be in a relationship with her. But the truth is, I gain a better kind of freedom. Because... I've now found myself in a state in which I can actually feel most free. I have a love relationship with somebody where I'm not being exploited. I have the security of knowing that there's somebody who's willing to, to serve me and to care for me as I serve her and, and care for her and give myself to her and I have a, a happiness and a fulfillment in that security and in that relationship, that's freer than I've ever known. Why? Because when you love somebody, you find your happiness in their happiness, don't you? You you, you seek to please them and to do their will because you delight in their will being done. You actually find joy in that. You you find freedom and release in that. There are are limits to my autonomy for sure, but they're not begrudged. They're, They're given up willingly because I see the greater value and the greater freedom in the giving and the receiving of love. Now, I'm talking about myself here in a marriage relationship, but that is not a freedom that is reserved for married people, okay? Just to be clear about that. It's a freedom that any significant love relationship can provide. Any. And, and all of you, I hope, have something of this where you can identify with it. Maybe it's with a parent. Maybe it's with your best friend. Or maybe it's with a, a child of yours or, or a fellow church member or some other similar relationship that require the loss of your individual freedom. Right, That you've got to give up something of your autonomy in order to gain the freedom of the security of a non-exploitative, fulfilling love. If you're a person who thinks that true autonomy, not having any of those kinds of limitations placed on you, true autonomy is the pathway to ultimate freedom, then I have news for you. You can live like that, but you will never experience this kind of love relationship that I'm talking about, and you will find yourself to be very lonely. Very lonely. Or at best, you're just going to have really superficial relationships. And here's the question, where's the fulfillment in that? I, I, I seriously challenge anybody to stand up and say, yes, that can be very fulfilling. I dare you to say that. The point is, you're not going to find freedom in the absence of restraints. That is an impossible task. You will find freedom in submitting yourselves to the right restraints. Freedom isn't the absence of restraints. It's, it's, It's found in submitting yourself to the right ones. The right ones. Another way to say that would be this. What was I designed for? What are the parameters, what are the guardrails that if I stay within them will actually bring me the most satisfaction and liberty? My son's learning how to drive. We had a conversation recently about cars and one of the questions that, that, that was asked was like, uh, what happens if you put the wrong kind of gas in a car? It's a good question. A good answer for it too. If you put the wrong kind of gas in a car, it's not going to work very well. It's not going to run properly, right? You put the right kind of gas in, the kind of gas that the engine was designed to run on, and it's going to it's going to run the way it was intended to run. It's going to run well. So you might ask, well, how do you know what's the right kind of gas to put in? <laughs> Again, not rocket science. You go to the owner's manual, and you find out from the people who actually designed the engine what kind of gas they intended the engine to run on, right? This, I believe, is is what John is saying here about our relationship with God. When when, when you recognize that, that God is good and loving towards you, it ought to compel you to want to do what he says. But here's the thing. When you do what he says, it's good for you because that's what you were made for. If he's the one, and this is the beginning of 1 John, this is what he's talking about. He's the eternal one. He's the one who made you. He knows what you were designed to run on. And so he's told you, live like this. Follow me in these things. And John's making that point. Look, It's it's actually most freeing for you to do that. You're going to find your ultimate satisfaction and freedom in submitting to Jesus. If Jesus is the eternal God, in whom there is no darkness but only light, then to walk in the truth is to walk the way He walked. It's to do the things He commanded as the designer of your body, as the designer of your mind, as the designer of your heart, and of the, He's the maker of your purpose. Now, why do we buck against that so much? culture, Why is the human heart buck against that so much? Because I think this, people fail to see the beauty and the freedom in following Jesus because they think they understand religion, but they don't understand the Gospel. They don't understand the real claims and the demands of Christianity. They think they understand religion, and they probably do because every other major religion says this, obey God and He might accept you. He might, if you obey him good enough, you know. Obey God, and he might accept you. Give up your freedom to submit to his rules, if you hope to avoid his judgment. That's pretty much the message of every major religion, and that's not a very compelling message, is it? And so many people reject that kind of relationship because they say, you know what? Um, we're talking about relationships. That feels like exploitation. That feels very. One-sided. I have to give up all of my freedom. I have to submit to this one. What's in it for me? Other than maybe the hope that I'm not going to burn forever? But listen, that's not the relationship that God asks us to enter into through the Gospel. That is not the Gospel. Hear me on this. And I'll quote Keller because he says it better than I do. Jesus essentially says to us, I call you only to do those things you were created to do. And you will find, therefore, that my yoke is easy. I put on you the burden of following me. Yes. But I've already paid the price so that when you fail, you'll be forgiven. I've taken off of you the burden that other people have. I've removed the burden of earning your own salvation through your own striving and your own effort. I've removed the burden of guilt or shame of past failures. I've taken off the burden of having to prove yourself worthy of love. I am therefore the only Lord and Master who, if you find me, will satisfy you. And if you fail me, will forgive you. Jesus won't exploit you. He won't ask you to give up your freedom as a one-sided transaction. Listen to what Jesus is like. And again, this is right where John started. This 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 is what he's trying to say to us. Jesus lost his glory. He became mortal, and he died for you. In Jesus, God says, I will adjust for you. I will sacrifice for you. And he gave up his very life to propitiate God's holy anger towards you. He was nailed to a cross on your behalf. Is that not the ultimate loss of freedom? Jesus gave up his freedom so that you could be free from your ultimate bondage, sin, and death. He gave up independence for you. And when you get that, I think John's saying, do you get this? Do you get the kind of Lord that we have here? When When you understand that, it ought to compel you then, out of gratitude and out of mutual love, to give up your independence for Him and yet find your greatest satisfaction in doing so. John 8.36 If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Let's pray. Father, I just thank You for the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I thank You, Lord, that as as we read these words, and they're they're not easy words to hear on their own. Don't sin. Do everything that I've commanded. I thank You that we don't just hear those and that's it. That it's not that one-sided. We hear, but if you do sin... If you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Thank you for Jesus. Help us to believe Him. Help us to trust Him. Help us to submit ourselves to Him, not out of fear, but out of love. Help us to know that our greatest satisfaction and freedom really does come in following Him, submitting to Him, obedience to Him, because He has died for us to set us free. We're so grateful to hear that. Help us to hear it, to believe it, and to live it this week. Help us to be a people who are holy people. Help us to be a people whose outward action reflects the outward justice of Jesus in the world around us. Lord, help us to do the things that he says because we are so grateful for all that he has done for us. Help us to remember the gospel every day this week. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our advocate. Amen.